Hey there, it's Bailey Hancock, career happiness strategist, creator of The One Year Career, and your host of The Bailey Hancock Show, a podcast that helps people figure out how to make big career moves with small steps. Navigating your career doesn't have to suck. I'm here to help you learn to love the process. Hey guys, Bailey Hancock here. Today we have one of the most fascinating multi-passionates I have met in recent years. Uh, Her name is Adriana Kurtzer and she is a design entrepreneur, but her most recent professional um, path was as the senior advisor to the senior deputy chairman for the National Endowment for the Arts during the Obama administration, which is a pretty you know, mouthful of a title, but baller as hell, um, among so many other things that she has done. So I'm excited to chat with Adriana today to find out how she has bounced from one thing to the next, seemingly very different industries and different types of roles, and really made it all work for her. So welcome to the party, Adriana. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. So glad to have you. Um, Adriana and I met fairly recently through a mutual friend, And when that mutual friend told me I needed to meet her, she pretty much just said, listen, just get on a phone call with her. You guys are going to be obsessed with each other. You're super (laughs) familiar in the sense that you're both crazy multi-passionates that have a lot of different interests and have done a ton of different things in your careers. And she was totally right. So PC, thanks for the intro. It was a really fantastic (laughs) one. Shout out to PC. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, you know, before we dive into the most recent position you had and then how you even ended up there and what's next for you. I always like to know, what did little Adriana want to be when she grew up? An actress. Okay. So all throughout high school, the, 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 the thing that I dedicated the most energy to and um, was, really, was really theater. And I went through um, a bit of middle school, but definitely all of high school, very, very focused on theater. Um, with a little, you know, a little side gig as a cheerleader as well, because that's sure. what you do. Um, and, and, um, and took advantage during the summer um, of my time in the U.S., because I grew up in Brazil, to attend two different summer school programs, one at Barnard and one at Boston University that were really, um, one was partially focused on theater and the other one was all focused on theater. And at the end of those two experiences, I said, um, no. I can't make it out of poverty. This is fantastic. I know how to hold my body. I know how to fake sword fight. Um, I was cast as Super always. Super important skill in life. Yeah, very important. I was always cast as like, you know, the demanding older lady <laughs> to current times. Um, and uh, that was what I thought I was going to be. Wow. So that's, I mean, I love that you, even in high school, went ahead and like, tested the waters, right? Because most people don't do that. They're like, I'm going to be this when I grow up. And then they wait till they grow up to like try it out. And then they get there and they're like, oh, hold the phone. I don't want to do this. Like kind of once you've already invested some time. So you did it the right way. No, forty to $50,000 is too much money to spend on a freshman year to fuck it up. I mean, no you can kid. fuck it up in other ways, but you know, not others. Yeah, exactly. So that's amazing. So once you're like, okay, cool. I want to actually, you know, live inside and eat well. Um, what did you switch your focus to? Well, what I did was after I graduated high school from the Escola Graduada in, in Sao Paulo, I uh, had gotten into Brown during my senior year, but having studied as hard as I did, I decided to defer. And I deferred first for six months, uh, and then it, I, I, I went on a full gap year. Hmm. And uh, mind you, I started planning my gap year in 1997. This is before the internet got really big. So it was planned you know, partially with faxes and letters and emails. Um, But, you know, it it really wasn't the research world that we have today. 
but fast forward, I took a gap year off before going to Brown and um, went to do volunteer work, straight up work and travel in places like Algeria, mm. Israel, Greece, Spain, uh, Italy and, and other places. Um, and then by the time I got to Brown, it was very clear to me that I wanted to uh, pursue international relations, mm. focus on U.S., Brazil, social, economic, and political uh, relationships. And what ended up happening was very naturally during my time at Brown, my, um, I almost got like all the credits uh, just naturally for a, a, a focus on uh, Judaic studies, a double concentration on Judaic studies with a focus on feminist theory and Latin American Jewish migration. So the two, you know, most normal majors in typical, the world. Typical, right? yeah. <laughs> but, but very typical of, of Brown. So huge shout out to Brown um, for taking in all of this energy and all of these ideas and all of these uh, deep identity questions that I had um, from the result of growing up in Brazil, but also a, a wonderful gap year and then taking it further uh, during those four years. Wow. So at this point, like when you decide international relations with a specialization on this, that, and the other, you're what, all of like 19 at this point? Well, I think I, I started international relations already at 18, and then the Judaic studies major concentration flowed fairly naturally from the age of, of 18, 19 to, you know, when I graduated. So you're clearly a very curious person, right? I mean, you must be. Yeah. Very curious, but but I, I say all this about these two majors because that this whole idea of multi, multi-interested, multi-passionate, um, and what I tend to call dual tracks, mm -hmm. um, this goes back, you know, mm -hmm. before even college, but very clearly in college. Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay, so you graduate, you do double major, all of that. What happens next? Did you do any more of these international trips or semesters abroad or anything like that during your time in college? Sure. Um, I did not take a gap year uh, or did not take a study abroad because I had just done uh, a gap year. So I stayed in Providence for all four years. Uh, the first summer I worked as a lifeguard in Texas at the girls camp that I attended, um, Camp Waldemar for girls, um, at which I was the only Latin and the only Jew running around when I was young. <laughs> Um, and I went back and worked as a lifeguard and, uh, and then did the second half of that summer doing um, volunteer work in Germany at Dachau, a concentration camp. Um, and then the second summer I worked at an education consulting company in London that back in those days helped Brazilians who wa wanted to learn English hook up with schools in England. Um, and, and organize their studies abroad. Mm. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to give banking a try because that's what everybody who's type A and ambitious wants to do or wanted to do at that time. Tech is the new thing. Um, and so I went and applied for jobs only at one place, uh, Goldman Sachs. That's Never heard place. of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> really, I, that's the advice I would give everyone, apply to only one job. Um, you know, and uh, uh, I ended up in the equities uh, in the equities group, which was uh, a group that organized a rotation for you during the summer. Uh, magically, the place that I fit in the best was the uh, Nasdaq uh, floor. 
uh, where people are expected to tell a lot of dirty jokes and eat pizza. So I did, I did real well, but it was clear to me that it was not, uh, it was not going to be a great, um, a great fit. Uh, and so I came back to my senior year, really, really wondering, well, if I don't want to do banking, what do I do next? And then September 11th hit. So I was at my internship in August and basically September 11th hit, you know, give or take a few weeks later and the whole economy crashed and, 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 and really there were no jobs to be, to be had. And again, to the reminder, you know, reminder to like younger listeners, this is before we had LinkedIn. This is before we had a lot of digital job postings. Um, people really relied on um, much more organic, you know, job searching. So here I am sitting in Providence. Yes, a little confused about what I wanted to be and the economy is crashing. So I applied to, to law school. So unfortunately, sorry, Georgetown Law, there is no more romantic story um, <laughs> than, you know, didn't like banking, the economy crashed. So I applied to you, you know. So I applied to, uh, you know, some, some law schools and, uh, and then went to Georgetown Law. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So <laughs> golly, where do we begin? So first and foremost, I want to know about your parents because clearly a person like you doesn't just emerge from, you know, Jane and Jack, the people that have, you know, no worldviews and no, you know, you have to start with some sort of, um, parental motivation, I think, or at least the allowance of you to be able to really stretch your legs and explore the world at such a young age. Um, what was growing up like? Like, What kind of lessons did they instill in you that made you feel so confident, like going out in the world and trying all of these different things? So my mother is Texan. My father is first-generation Brazilian. And um, I was raised in Brazil with a lot of contact with my Brazilian family and their history is very interesting. My grandfather, Nathan, came to Brazil, it's debated whether he was 13 or 15, but by himself from uh, Bessarabia, which is now Moldova, and came by himself to Brazil and became a peddler. So he was selling uh, ties and, 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 and carpets and all different kinds of, of textiles. Uh, on the streets of Brazil and other Latin American countries until he really uh, decided to stay in Brazil and went on to build a factory that made scarves and ties uh, mm. back in the day when women and men wore scarves and ties almost every, every day. And so he really is an incredible story. So he came at 13, 15, made enough money and then brought over the rest of his family. Wow. Uh, chain migration. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so and my grandmother was born uh, in Cuba. This is my father's mother, uh, Neji. She was born in Cuba. Her parents running away from Russia uh, in 1917, lost a child in the snow, uh, ended up in Cuba. She was born and then they ended up in Brazil. So you already have a history, a deep history of immigration and searching and courage uh, and risk-taking that I think is always important to highlight because that's why I'm, I'm fascinated with immigration is I think it explains a lot about who we are today for the better or for the worse. So all of these positive attributes and also a healthy dose of intergenerational trauma. Um, <laughs> <That'll> so <do. laughs> so um, that's on my, on my father's side and on my, and on my mother's side, um, she is um, American through and through Oklahoma father, Texas mother, 
Um, but her uh, family also had um, invested a lot in her for her to take everything the next step further. So she was born in a very small town. My grandfather worked um, for Mobile Oil, and he worked his way up in the company. But when they started off, they were out where the oil rigs are in Texas, which is, you know, out there. And then eventually moved to Houston. And my grandmother was the one who, you know, decided, you know, this is a wonderful camp. My daughter should go there. This is UT, you know, go there. You know, like really invested in, uh, in, in, in my mother. And I think that as a result, I really was raised with this particular type of, maybe you could call it, you know, Texan Southern Belle feminism, um, which also I give a lot of credit to. I mean, that all makes perfect sense. And I got chills like four times when you're talking about <laughs> There's more to come. <laughs> oh, God. No, that's, that's, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, I think there is something to be said for courage being genetic um, and just knowing the stories of both sides of your family growing up just had to wipe away any preconceived notions about like what you can and can't do with your life. Yeah. Cause yep. you got to see firsthand, Oh, you can do anything really. I mean, it's not going to be easy. You can do just about anything and go just about anywhere. If you really want to take ownership of, of opportunity and what's out there. And it's also important to contextualize. I mean, I'm, I'm not special in, in many regards. I am what I would call, consider a third culture kid even though the term was originally created for the children of diplomats and, and the executives of large multinationals, I think the term now um, goes on to encompass people whose education or life has m meant that they are not just what their passport says they are. Um, and, and there are many great things that come with being a third culture kid. There are also you know, downsides in a certain sense of dislocation and rootlessness, which which is obviously a part of, of my identity as well. Right. Amazing. Okay. So well, fa also the fact that you were working for Goldman Sachs and doing all of that and then September 11th happens and it's got it that I can't even, my mind's blown on what that whole thing must've even felt like, especially being in college and being so young and being so close to it. And yeah. I don't, I don't even know what to say on that. Yeah, and it's but it's funny to hear someone say, like, you know, working for Goldman Sachs. There's a big difference between working and interning. Uh, sure. So I still had to be at my desk at 5.30 a.m. in the morning, which was a particular path to uh, weight gain. But, you know, I, the, you know, I, I was an intern. Sure, <laughs> sure. <you> know. <laughs> right, of course. But, yeah, not to knock that, though. Um, okay. So what ends up happening then, you know, you're coming up on graduation. Where are you at this point? What did you decide to land on? Did you have, you know, what was that first inclination of like, what the hell am I going to do after I graduate? Yeah. So I really didn't want to go back to Brazil. And so I, I, uh, I decided to stay in the States, go to law school. And so, um, I always tell mentees that, I, I, in retrospect, I wish I had had a little bit more courage to take more risk and mm -hmm. rather than having to feel like at graduation from college, I had to have this spiel about, you know, this is what I'm doing. Um, it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. It's kind of ridiculous, but you know, there are a lot of things about my personality that, you know, are kind of ridiculous in the sense of how high my standards are and then in retrospect it's like well it didn't have to be that high you know sure. but at that point it, i remember it was very vivid to me that i wanted to arrive at graduation day with a spiel and with a plan about where i was going um and not you know asking anyone for money or kind of you know Im improvising you know some move to some city 
I also didn't really have family to live with in the States. So I guess the, the idea of leaving Providence and not having somewhere to go in the U.S. was a little complicated. Um, so I did uh, start law school in uh, Georgetown in Washington, in Washington, D.C., straight after after college. So even more thankful for the gap year between high school and, and college because that's uh, a path I do not recommend is for people to just go from school to school to school. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for having a little bit of real life experience to reflect on whether it's in an MBA program or law school or some other grad yeah. program. It just, it colors your experience and your education just so much more um, holistically. Yeah. Okay, so you go to law school. Did you specialize in anything in particular? Well, of course, three different things. I was going to say. <laughs> of course. Um, so one of the big reasons why I, I even considered law school was, so if you get these two interests of mine during, during college, which were Judaic studies and international relations, one of the big topics that was trending when I graduated from college, which was around 2000, which was 2002, um, was all of the art restitution cases connected to World War II. So art that had been looted, stolen, uh, sold under duress, that was that, art, artworks that were now either surfacing or surfacing uh, back into the market through auction or, or on museum walls, and, and families and heirs were, were making claims. And these, of course, are um, very difficult diplomatic and oftentimes political issues as well. Um, oftentimes the pure law doesn't address the wrong that, that we could say you know, took place. So when I went into, uh, into law school, I knew that art law was a huge interest of mine. So that was one. Uh, two was a continued interest in all things corporate. Mm. So um, I really do think that I was, uh, one of many women who really, really, really had like the pantsuit vision for their future. That was, um, you know, the kind of pantsuit, click clacking heels down a corporate office floor. Um, that was really still, um, and, and had been for many, and it's continued to be in my, in my, in my, in my blood for many years. So corporate law was also an interest uh, with an international or a transnational component uh, to it, um, tying back to Brazil uh, as well. And then the third interest was uh, international uh, women's rights. Mm -hmm. So Georgetown has a fantastic reputation um, for having legal clinics and courses focused on, um, on, on women's rights. Um, and, and so that was part of it as well. So I took courses um, in all those areas and even one semester, I took a legal clinic in which for four months, all we did was talk about female genital mutilation because we were writing a report for the Ugandan parliament. Um, and we did research and, and preparation in DC and then went to Uganda and conducted interviews uh, and then prepared this report that looked at the issue from a, a, an international, a pan-African and then uh, a local law uh, perspective and then made recommendations. So again, multi-passionate is not a new thing. Yeah. Uh, but then what the, the, there are always threads and, and how things braid together and then some things splinter off 
Um, but usually more often than not, there's a braiding of interests, um, than, 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 you know, than a a new thing just completely coming along. That's a fantastic analogy. I've never thought about it as braiding together interests and that's perfect because it's true. It's like, yeah, sometimes they're woven together really nicely. Sometimes they split off and you know, that's fine, but you're right. I think none of your story so far seems chaotic or all over the place. There's <laughs> clearly, even though I'm sure at the time it probably felt that way. <laughs> like, yeah. Being a nerd helps. You know, yeah. that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, being insatiably curious and clearly a lifelong <laughs> learner with somebody that has bravery coming out her ass. Like, yeah, you, it, makes, <laughs> it all makes a lot of sense. And like, talk about Jesus, like light topics, right? For for your research subject. That's incredible. So I, I liked you before. Now I love you. Um, <laughs> so cool. Um, so absolutely amazing. Um, man. Okay. So when you're coming up on the end of law school at this point, are you like, this is what, I mean, which one of those do you even pick though? Because although they're, they're braided together really nicely, I, I want to know if being a lawyer that specializes in, you know, international women's rights and, art and all of these different things like does that one lawyer exist or did you kind of were you sort of forced to have to be like okay I'm going to start here and then go from there yeah you absolutely have to have to focus and and choose one of those I mean I always I always say again to mentees you know when you go to one interview you make that one interview and that one interviewer and that one job seem like that is the only thing you you want yeah you don't have to say it's the only thing you've ever wanted because that's a lie but you know that one thing is what you want and 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 I think for me by the end of law school a couple of things have become clear as a result of the legal clinic and a lot of the the work with uh women's human rights um I I witnessed greed in the context of non-for-profit organizations. And I said to myself, you know what? There's nothing wrong with people wanting to make money. There's nothing wrong with people being greedy and ambitious um, and strategic, but I didn't like the way that I witnessed it in the context of, of, of non-for-profits. So why is an organization that is you know, fighting for female genital mutilation pocketing money from the UNFPH? And so I said, you know what, for this phase in my life, if I'm going to be greedy, if I'm going to want to make money, I'd much rather not make it in this context. I'd much rather be in a context that's a lot more above board. Right. So, so that, was, that was where that interest was, was put to the side mm. professionally. Uh, not personally until this day, women's rights are a huge you know, component of my interest. Mm. But professionally, it was to the side. And during law school, I was able to intern at the National Gallery in, uh, in Washington, D.C., in their legal department. Hmm. And it was a fantastic experience. Um, I love the people that I work with. I was obsessed with the cafeteria. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and what was very, very clear from all of their, their bits of advice was that you cannot be an art lawyer. You cannot work as an art lawyer in whatever that means. Um, without being groomed by a large law firm because museums, smaller practices, independent practices don't have the, 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 the resources to groom you when you come out of law school. And to be quite honest, everyone comes out of law school with zero practical skills. 
and, right. and, and a lot of theory. Um, mm. And so it was very clear to me, everyone being like, it's great that you're interested in this, but you need to, uh, you need to get groomed by a big firm. So by the, um, by my last year in law school, the Brazilian IPO market, so the Brazilian initial public offering market, capital markets, um, were booming again. It was the second big, uh, big boom. And by this point, the market had become um, used to having uh, lawyers who were fluent in Portuguese and English, U.S. trained lawyers with the JD that were fluent in Portuguese. So there was demand in law firms for aliens like myself who were bilingual, bicultural, uh, and had a U.S. Uh, and had a U.S. JD. So um, even though I went through law school, very, very contemptuous of some of the more stereotypical things that people do to get into the big firms, like moot court and, and, and journal, that's, that, that's not what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I did land a job with Simpson Thatcher, which is uh, a very, very prestigious white shoe law firm in uh in new york um specifically to work with their latin american team on uh on brazilian public offerings so situations where brazilian companies uh, are going public and their shares will be traded uh in the u.s or will be offered to u.s investors as well so it sounds like your banking little bit of experience and interest kind of came right back in at that point which is, you know, not surprising, but something else I wanted to point out before we go into this next piece is how you said that, you know, you set aside that, you know, the women's rights interest professionally, of course, not personally. And that's something I hear time and time again from people who are definitely multi-passionate people is they feel like they don't know what to do with all of these various interests and they, they feel guilty, you know, quote unquote, abandoning them. Um, because they're like, oh, well, then I'm not following through and it's, you know, I'm not seeing that path down the road. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't mean you have to stop caring about it. It just means maybe that's not what's going to pay your bills right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of have to, otherwise you're going to be like buried under all of your interests all day, every day. And another really fantastic point you made was, you know, whether it's law school or getting a new job, you need to be specific and focus in certain circumstances. Like, yes, I identify as a multi-passionate. I give a, a shit about a lot of different things, right? But when I'm going into a particular situation to potentially meet new people, I'm going to frame my interests and my experience and my um, desires for that night, whatever goals I have on the people that I know I'm going to meet so that yeah. you know, I don't end up in the miscellaneous bin in people's minds, which is what happens yeah. when you get That's them- a very... That's a very good point. I remember in college taking a class called Sociology, the Development of the Individual Within a Social Context. Jesus. And one of, the, one of the, the, my favorite things that I learned from that class was that we have all of these different selves. We have a normative self, we have a presented self, and we have, you know, and, and, and so I, and, you know, and that identity is at the end of the day, selective. And so there's nothing wrong with, thinking about how you present yourself uh, in different circumstances and being strategic um, you know, about how you do that. Now, of course, you know, dinner with your closest girlfriend or with your spouse and you're like, oh, you know, I, right now I'm loving five things. Yeah. But you're loving five things in that conversation, but when you go in for an interview or now as an entrepreneur, if you're gonna go and pitch business, you know, 
that that intimacy is not is not to be shared. Right. You look flaky. And I think that's the thing that that multi-passionates in particular get really hung up on. And I think the term multi-passionate is, I think, um, it's becoming a situation that's describing a whole lot more people than maybe in years past. I think, especially millennials, there seems to be this shift towards trying a bunch of different things. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But as that becomes more and more pervasive in our culture, it's going to be more important for people to understand how to leverage that properly, how to keep themselves from feeling like a hundred different personalities in one body, even though kind of that's how people are. Um, but it's just like, you know, if you decide to pick a particular outfit to go out, that doesn't mean like that's the only outfit you ever wear. It's the one you've specifically chosen for that occasion and that event because you're trying to portray a particular thing. And that's going to be different from situation to situation. So Good lesson learned there, everybody, if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, okay, so next step. So pick up where we left off. I keep losing place because there's yeah, so many no, so like we left off, here. We left <laughs> off with uh, me, graduating, uh, me graduating law school and, and, and getting a job in, in New York. So yes. um, the, uh, one of the cool things that I did when I graduated law school was um, I took this awesome truck trip through Central Asia. So there's this thing called overlanding that I had never, uh, I had never heard about. And, you know, you graduate from law school and, and, and I was in a situation where, you know, my friends with, with, with money had no time and my friends with time had no money. And <laughs> sure. so I was kind of like, you know, where am I going to go by myself? And I really wanted to go somewhere um, unusual and for a long period of time. And so my, my friend Boaz from law school said, well, you know, I went to Ethiopia with this company called Drago Man, and you know you should check them out. So I go on their website, and I was like, you know, I'm going to look for countries that, for as much as I love traveling and think I know the world, I have no idea where they are. And so I ended up doing a five-week trip through um, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey. Um, in a truck that's basically been modified so that the top of it is like a bus and the bottom of it is like a truck. And, uh, and that was really, and that was really fantastic. And that was a long, a long, nice trip. And then, um, and then, and then started, uh, and then started, uh, working at Simpson Thatcher in, uh, in New York. So wait, were you driving this truck or was it on like a <laughs> God forbid. I um, pictured you trucking, like driving alone. I've driven a truck. I mean, but I'll just across it. Asia by yourself. And I was like, damn. No, no, no. It's with a group. So you, you showed, I mean, I showed up with a bunch of strangers um, and uh, was lucky that I had a, a, a friend there, Sif from, from uh, Iceland, who was my same age. And, and, you know, you camp some, par- some parts, you sleep in homestays, you sleep in hotels, other parts. And, you know, it's really interesting. You know, all the hotels in Turkmenistan are bugged, and you know, it's it's really it, it's really cool. Bugged meaning you know they're yeah. they're listening in. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Uh, what did you so take away from from those five weeks? Was there like an overall like, oh yeah, I'm glad I did this because of blank? Thank God, I wish I were that deep. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're good. You're good on everything else. It's cool if you're not that deep. I you know, I, I don't know. I think my biggest memory is I look back on pictures and I was like damn, I look good. I done Weight Watchers right before, you know, leaving law school. And I was like a size six or eight. And, you know, oh, I was rocking that bikini there. Very and, uh, important. Hey, those are Azerbaijan. I mean, that's cool too, because you're in your twenties at this point. Right. And it's like, 
if you don't do these kind of ballsy solo trips where you are, you're looking good, you're feeling good, you're taking a pause before you hop back into your next intense phase of life. If you don't do it when you can, then life gets a hold of you. And next thing you know, you you can't really make it happen anymore. If you do, it's going to be really challenging. So that's great that you gave yourself that time. It was like your, your second gap year, but for five weeks. It was like my second gap year. Exactly. That's incredible. Okay. So you start at the law firm, then what? Mm -hmm. So I start at the law firm and uh, immediately start off as part of the uh, Latin American Capital Markets Group, um, which uh, was based out of New York. And, 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 and I mean, I, I hate using this expression, but I found nothing better, which is literally hit the ground running, right? Like that expression of like, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> and I think that's where I think some of the, the theater background uh, came in was that I was um, from a very, very early point flying down to Brazil in my first year already as a, as a, as a junior lawyer, um, participating in, in, in drafting sessions um, a lot of times by myself. So I was, you know, a junior first year associate getting on an eight to nine hour flight to Brazil and representing the interests of a client um, and of the firm uh, by myself. And that, that, that taught me at a very, um, in a very clear way, how to um, strike a very delicate balance between giving a client or a group a set, a sense of assurance that things are getting taken care of, but also not lying. Mm. Um, and also not, you know, speaking with pride and with, with knowledge and with clarity, um, but also not, uh, but also having the courage to not say, uh, to, to say what you do not know. And that's something that I, the number one thing that I love from my internship at Goldman Sachs was this, they drilled into our head um, to say, you know, I do not know, I will find out and get back to you right? That, that's a, Such a powerful sentence. And, 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 you know, it's interesting, like now how strongly I will discriminate against people who don't have the courage to say that because it says something about, um, uh, about their discomfort, um, with, with lack of knowledge, which I think we all have lack of knowledge and should have lack of knowledge. If, you know, if you're progressing, you're going to be in a situation where you don't know everything. Um, and so, and so that experience, and I really have to say, I mean, there are many things about the, the life of a corporate lawyer that are very, very difficult on one's health, uh, on one's relationships. But, but what I really, really, really liked, um, was it was a very rare sense for a junior lawyer in New York city, not to feel 100% fungible, not 100% replaceable, mm. um, and, and that's something that I feel I, I, I was very aware of. Um, it, it, it didn't get to my head, but it was something that made my life a little bit more bearable was to feel like, okay, this is really tough, but there are some skills here that I can, that, that, that are special, that I'm not like every other graduate from Georgetown and Harvard and Berkeley yeah. and all that stuff. Which obviously is just the result of your varied background. And I mean, how fascinating and not surprising, I guess, that you ended up in a place like that where your, your own personal family heritage came into play right away and your hustle, get shit done attitude came into play. And to go back to your point about being honest when you don't know something without coming across as 
somebody young and dumb that doesn't deserve to be in the room. That's something, I don't know if that can be taught or if you just have to like be in that situation and practice saying, you know what, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Yep. But like you guys listening, that that's one of the best things you can learn to do for yourself in literally any situation because people suddenly are like, oh, she's telling me the truth. Like nobody's going to say, oh, I don't know if they really know. Nobody. And, to and be I able- think even, even together with that is people oftentimes don't remember what you say. They remember how, they, how you've made them feel. And so a lot of times people may not remember what they asked you mm-hmm. and they may not remember what you don't know, but they will remember whether you, especially as a service provider, because that's what a lawyer is, they will remember how you made them feel as a client. And that intangible, I think, ends up being um, extremely important. But, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I talked about my life without giving a lot of um, open credit or open disclosure about how privileged, you know, my background was. And I think I'm bringing this up at this point because I think it's Malcolm Gladwell in his book, um, Outliers, talks about um, how children of wealthier families are, are, are raised you know, to ask questions and to, and to challenge authority, or at least to challenge you know, what they are told and ask questions about what they're told. And I think that that's something that you know, I'd be remiss and, and disingenuous if I didn't say that there's a certain element in my background um, of strong privilege that then helps me present myself in a, in a, in a certain way. That's, I'm so glad you said that because oftentimes when we hear people's stories and we're like, damn, they just came out of the womb that way. Like that's incredible. There's so much more that goes into it. And There's I more think, that goes into it. you know, I mean, obviously it's nature and nurture. It's all of that. But I think being raised in a situation of privilege where you know that, you know, questioning authority is not going to, is not going to harm you. It's not going to put you in harm's way. It's not going to keep you out of the room necessarily. It's, it's super important. And I think that's something of value for people to know that, yes, it, can you get past that if you don't come from that background? 100%. It's just a different angle you're taking to the same right. place. Right. So how long did you last on these nine hour back and forth flights, you know, running shit as a 20 something year old who is probably looking around every now and then being like, do I belong here? Like, I'm sure there's some sort of imposter syndrome that every now and then creeps in because even the most confident of people get it. How long did that phase of your career last? So I, um, I think it was about, I'm really bad at numbers, but I think it was about four, four years. We'll, we'll double check that on the link. Um, but, um, it was, I think it was about four years and then, um, a couple of things, a couple of things happened. So at one point I was, you know, sometimes two to three times a month on an airplane because drafting sessions, you know, in-person meetings are a very important uh, part of, of the job. And for as much as the travel was difficult, I really liked, like in retrospect, I was like, wow, I really liked being in, in a room with humans and the joking around and the Brazilian food. And a lot of times I would know people in the room from, you know, other aspects of, of my life. So that was, that was a part of it. That, that had to have been kind of cool. That I really liked. Yeah. Um, but there, you know, there are a couple of things to kind of, uh, say about how I lived those four years. So uh, my very first week back when I was at Goldman Sachs as an intern, I decided that I really was going to start observing the Sabbath. So Mm -hmm. even though I am not Orthodox and am um, a big feminist Jew, um, 
I, uh, I knew that at some point in my life, but particularly in my professional life, my professional reputation, I was going to have to decide one way or the other. You can't just, you know, make this up <laughs> one day to the next kind of thing. So, well, you can, but the timing is, is, is important. And so, um, back, uh, back then I decided I was going to observe the Sabbath and it's something that I have, um, that I continue to do. And it was, it was not the easiest thing. Um, it was not the easiest thing to continue doing in a, uh, in a corporate setting. So that's, yeah, when you're not at home, you're traveling all the time, you're everywhere. It's really hard. Right. Or the expectation is that you're on call, um, you know, all the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm, starting to list a couple of things that are important to contextualize maybe the, 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 the things that were important to me, but also the political costs that they may have had in a corporate environment. Mm. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's, you know, there's a the perception that you're not available all the time. You know, you're already a woman lawyer. Mm. Yeah. You know, you're already loud and opinionated in Latin. Mm. <laughs> you know, and then on top of it, wait a second, you know, oh, you've got all the time. You know, you've got boundaries. How dare boundaries. you? Right. Um, uh, so, so I think that's one thing. The second thing is when the economy was doing really well, uh, and a lot of the push for diversity was trending you know, law firms like mine brought in, you know, diversity consultants and, and they, and they, they did a big like 360 and they interviewed everyone and they came out with a report. And, you know, as a result, there were all these committees formed and then there was a woman's committee formed. And of course I was invited. And of course I said yes. And, 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 you know, became active in, in, in speaking out about, um, in about, about what does go on in, in, in these, uh, in these environments. And, you know, um, time's up, hopefully, for those things to change as well. But, you know, it's not, it's not exactly the easiest environment. Right. Uh, and, and, and then the third thing that I did um, that had certain political costs is, you know, I came out of, the law, out of law school as an American lawyer, as a JD. And uh, to the benefit of the law firm, I spent four years doing only one very specific type of transaction. And I could have just kept my mouth shut and just kept doing that one specific type of transaction, becoming even more senior, having an even better quality of life. And instead, I said, well, no, I need to be a well-rounded American uh, JD lawyer and, um, and, and asked to be put on different transactions that were American. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not going to say that I regret doing that, but at the same time, I, I feel a certain sense of, wow, kind of like by doing the right thing for my legal education and for my role as a lawyer at this firm, I, I really shot myself in the, in the foot. So when the economy, um, when the recession, the great recession started, because I was in capital markets, we saw it happen first. Mm. So the greatest irony of the world is that I met my husband because I went out one night and it was the night that four of my IPOs were put on pause all of the, all of the same day. And so that's the, the big irony is that I met my husband that night. And then the six months after that were gut wrenching because, you know, yeah, you may love not working hard all the time, but it gets really, really nerve wracking when your billable hours are clearly not normal. Um, and so, uh, you know, fast forward, they, uh, they fast forwarded our, 
our reviews, our personal reviews. And unlike other law firms in the city where um, they said, you know, the economy is, is shit, we're going to lay people off and these are our numbers and it sucks, but this is what we're doing. Here's a press release. Um, unfortunately, Simpson Thatcher uh, didn't do it that way. And Simpson Thatcher decided that they were going to use our early reviews to peg, uh, you know, whatever discontent that they may have had and to use that as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way of showing us the door. But it just so happened that uh, the person whose single review uh, led to be to, to my layoff, um, there were three different things that that person had said that 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 raised red flags, legal red flags, and so I was able to uh, negotiate a form of settlement with the law firm, uh, which then powered a very aggressive career change uh, into what I am now which is a design entrepreneur. So yeah, I've been waiting for this like pivot to happen. So I'm like, I think I already know the end of the story, but I know the real end of the story and it's not the one I'm being <laughs> think is the end of the story. Right. So wait, so are we talking like 08 or 09 at this point or earlier? So we're talking, no, 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 we're talking. Um, so we're talking December-ish, I think 08. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, just to put it into context for everybody, because inevitably in all of my conversations that I've been having, the recession plays a very key piece in everybody's career story. Like it was, it was a pause and pivot for almost every single person that has shared their, their career journey. So, okay, cool. So we come to the end of 2008, shit falls apart to some extent, <laughs> you know, in so many senses of the word for the country, for most of us, like. So what are you pivoting to now at this point? And so, how do you decide? So I, um, I was very, very lucky. Well, first I drank like four or five martinis. Yeah, clearly. Cried my eyes out. Had no idea how I was going to pay my mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's... Which, you know. that's an important piece too. It's okay to grieve. Even if like things end up working out in the long run, it does not matter. Like the loss of a job, whether it's deserved or undeserved, the loss of anything deserves at least a brief pause to just wallow in it, reflect, feel really shitty, and then pick up the pieces and get your lessons learned and moved on. But if you avoid it, it'll get you eventually anyway. Oh, I yeah. And, and, and one, yeah. One thing that I learned about, you know, myself, and then I saw it in, in close friends. And then now I, I feel the liberty to tell people who approach me, um, when they're still a little too raw is if you don't grieve or if you don't allow yourself that, you know, that big grief period, um, not necessarily in private, but if you don't do enough of that and you start reaching out too early for people who yeah. are not friends and family, for people who quite honestly only know you and will know you or want to know you in a professional sense, and your energy is crooked the way that all of our energies are very crooked when you get laid off. Yeah. That you run the risk of that being their first impression. So I, I remember telling a very dear friend of mine who at that time got laid off from a, a hedge fund job and he was like, Oh my God, I need to job search. And I remember telling him at dinner, I was like, no, you, are, <laughs> I'm not going to let you walk no position. with this energy. You are going to go to Tulum for a week. <laughs> And then when you come back, you can meet humans. Bathe in some sage. <laughs> Clear that energy. 
So yeah, so I, but, but what I was very lucky, so when, um, when news came out that uh, there were um, less than ideal and less than kosher situations that had led to, um, to my layoff, my, um, my mentor at the firm was an incredible woman uh, who uh, had not been a part of, of, didn't even know that I had been laid off and, and was very surprised and then helped me uh, with everything. And then one of the things that she said, she said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about your future until you do an aptitude test at the Johnson O'Connor Foundation. Mm. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, it's this nonprofit organization. You can go, you know, they're all over the U.S., but you can go down to, to Wall Street area and, uh, and take this test. And I was like, okay, well, you know, if Victoria Bjorklund tells you to do something, you do something. She's incredible. <laughs> um, very thankful to her till, the, till this day. And so I did this test two days, very strange set of, of, of tests, which, which you cannot manipulate, unlike a lot of the other, like, myopric stuff that you can kind of, you know, know what way they're going. Um, and at the end of it, you know, they say, you know, bring someone who's going to be an integral part of, of your life. And then, so I brought my, my boyfriend now husband and, um, they read your results and my results were extremely true to this day, which is that I scored abnormally high in three areas. One is adding order to chaos. Mm. So when situate, when someone turns to me and says, I have this objective, I don't know how to get there. The ability to get information that's misplaced and add order to it is, 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 is an aptitude that I scored above, I think, 95th percentile. Learning new technical vocabulary was also through the roof and something that they call uh, memory for design. So the ability to memorize visual things, turn them around in my head three-dimensionally, uh. place them, um, and synthesize, you know, visual information. So I think those, I would score negative 20 on that one. Oh, that's I have funny. no ability to do that. And that's well, speaking fascinating. Of, of, of low grades, I got very low grades in a lot of the things that you would need as a junior lawyer. So attention <laughs> to detail or attention to what they call inventory-like detail. Mm. Um, I scored, I think it was in the lowest 15th percentile. Uh, and, and, uh, and other things, you know, I, I know I'm dyslexic with numbers, but you know, mathematical abilities were not the strongest and all that mm. stuff. So Victoria Bjorklund was absolutely correct. I, by taking that test, certain, things became very clear. So even though there was a lot of ambiguity about what to do next, these results became almost like a lighthouse through the fog. It was like, wait, you can throw me a job that sounds amazing. And then I can go into my little, you know, dark room and think, well, do they connect to those aptitudes yeah. or do they not? And so they became real light posts and real, real, um, guiding lights in, in, in the confusion that was the, the great recession, but the great recession also bottomed out all traditional jobs. So you yeah. couldn't, even if you wanted to be a traditional lawyer, um, you couldn't really do that. But I did, you know, the same woman who sent me to get my aptitude test said, you know, okay, but before you completely change careers, um, an opportunity to work, uh, in the legal team at the Guggenheim, has come up because someone is going on a maternity leave and would you 
you know, could you do that for, I think it was four months. Um, and, 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 and I love that experience. I mean, you do not get a better legal team in terms of like, it's a mini law firm. You don't get a better setup than, you know, the Guggenheim. Um, and I'm very thankful to them, but it really was that experience that proved to me that, you know, my eyes were so curious. I was, I feel like I was always looking away from the black and white print of being a lawyer and, and really wanted to set up deals and find opportunities. And my eyes were very thirsty, um, too thirsty to be, um, dealing with black and white, you know, print every day. So that's really the kind of the more aggressive end of a traditional legal career. Again, legal skills have never stopped being used, yeah. but that's, that's, you know, that's one of the, the ends of that. Which is such a fascinating transition because it was almost like you eased out of it in a way, yeah. even though it, it, you know, yes, it's a very clear into it. It was like you put, you know, you had one foot in legal, one foot in art into, you know, that whole space. And then that allowed you to see when they're paired next to each other, how vastly different the interest levels actually were. And now that you were armed with this new knowledge about your own skill set and your own aptitudes and your own in intrinsic motivators and things like that, you were able to make much more strategic um, decisions, which I'm such a huge proponent in taking any and every personality aptitude test that you can take because it's all just their great data points for who you are yeah. as a person. And vocabulary. Um, yeah, it helps you understand not only yourself, but how to explain yourself better to the people that would potentially be hiring you so that everybody's on the same page, you know, yep. those reference points. So that's, that was fantastic advice from your mentor. And I'm sure that was like a very big turning point for you and being like, oh, okay. Like there are things that you inherently know to be true about yourself, but we're generally not really great at, at knowing what we're good at and what we're not good at. I think we usually underplay our strengths and we can overplay our weaknesses a little bit sometimes. So to have something written out as like, no, here's the truth about you is just something you can go back to for your entire life. Yep. So after Guggenheim, when you're like, okay, law, peace out. It's been real. <laughs> it's Going been back fun. to school. Of course. I put braces on. I put braces on for the second time, put on a backpack and, uh, and, and went and did um, a certificate at Parsons. Uh, so this is while I was receiving uh, money from the firm, I, I was able to be a full-time student uh, for six months uh, at Parsons. And, and they once told me that if they had known that I was doing a full certificate in six months, they would not have allowed it. Because <laughs> I basically like did all the credits in, you know, in six months. Because I was like, I've got to figure out, out of this huge world that we call design, out of this it's, you can't even call it an industry. It's, it's like saying the tech industry. That's right. Everything no. is tech. Everything there are 5,000 industries yeah. uh, that deal with design directly, indirectly, in new ways, in old ways, and, and there's so many different ways. And so um, by this point, I think, you know, I'm 30 years old, and I really knew that I had to be uh, – open-minded and strategic at the same time. So it's like, okay, let's explore, but because I need to narrow down, let's, you know, throw the resume everywhere because I need a job. But, you know, like, you know, so it was, it was a, but it was also a very dark period because I wanted to study and work and, you know, walking through a gallery's door with your resume that says, you know, mid-level associate at Simpson, that like, that people don't want to hire lawyers. No, they don't. Well, it's not even, I can, 
companies get very afraid of people with a lot of educational qualifications because they assume usually incorrectly that you're out of their price range. You're not going to want to take it or you're going to be a flight risk because you're going to get too bored or something like that. And it's like, I mean, I took my MBA off my resume for a time there because I was trying to just get a restaurant job and they were, they saw MBA and they were like, Nope. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, I, I tried getting jobs and in very non-glamorous places in New York, just because they were connected to, uh, to design. And it, and it really, yes, the recession was thick, but also they, they, they were not, you know, going anywhere. And there was, there was really no way that I could lie about where I had been for the last four years. So, you know, you, you do what you gotta do. So anyway, as fast forward a little bit, um, it really became clear as a result of the recession and, and it being tough to get a job, um, without a previous experience in the design field that I did have to go back to, uh, to school in a more formal way than just a certificate. So I, uh, applied to a master's in, uh, the history of decorative arts in design and the history of decorative arts at Parsons. And it's a joint program with the Cooper Hewitt, which is the national design museum, uh, a part of the Smithsonian. And um, received uh, a scholarship and also received uh, a fellowship to work within the, 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 the museum. And, and in accepting that, you know, that going back to school reality and the, you know, the financial responsibilities that came with that, I decided to treat um, that program like an incubator. So... Mm-hmm not allowing myself a ton of wishy-washiness because it was an expensive thing to do at age 30 um, to go back uh, to school. uh, And it had to be done in two years. I mean, I was like, I cannot, you know. I was going to say, do you have an entire wall of your house that's just like diplomas? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Or are they all crammed? It's under the bed right now. And I was just going to say. It's pretty embarrassing. It's pretty embarrassing. Mine are underneath my bed too. So, but that's funny. I was like, man, she's got to have like an entire gallery wall of all of these you know, and these aren't just like throwaway diplomas. These are impressive <laughs> ass degrees at incredibly amazing schools. So, I mean, bravo on that. I, you must get hit up by 20 different alumni departments all the time. <laughs> For money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For money. Why else do they come uh, calling? I do, I do lecture and I do speak at Brown. Um, shout incredible. out to Professor Hazeltine, who's amazing. Um, so, uh, so, so I, so the, the, the frame of mind, uh, with which I, I went into uh, graduate school was like, okay, I'm half Brazilian, half American. I've decided as a result of this certificate program that what I really like is object-based. Um, so you could say furniture-focused or you know, fi- object-based, meaning I like finite object and situations um, that have history, have a, a historical component to them. And so I go in and from the very start, I say, from my very application, I say that I'm going to focus on, on Brazilian uh, contemporary design and you know, a little bit of controversy around that because there's no one in the States, you know, studying or teaching that at the time. But, you know, fast forward, what ended up happening was most of the, fi- I tried to write a final paper for each of my classes that related back to a topic that fell on my radar um, early on 
in, in graduate school. So I went to a lecture by a, a fantastic Portuguese design critic called Federico Duarte. And in the middle of his lecture, he mentioned this thing called Favela Chiqui. And, and the international relations major in me and the, and the, you know, the anthropological, sociological lover in me just was like, what? You know, and this whole idea of Brazilian designers um, of upper class or upper middle class backgrounds using references to the Brazilian slums to brand and, uh, and, to, and to market their designs to a foreign audience. And I was like, whoa. So I say that what was two slides in his graduate presentation became something that I tried to write a final paper for in most of my graduate classes, became a thesis, um, and then was, was recommended by Professor David Brody, who at the time was the director of the program, to be um, published by the Smithsonian as a part of their, of their publication series called uh, Design File. Uh, so it was a, a digital publication series. So no big deal. That they were gonna do <laughs> focused on, um, on, on contemporary or, or different design topics, not just contemporary. And so the thesis then, I took it like 5,000 steps forward, you know, quality of, of discussion, quality of editing, had a wonderful editor, Penny Wolfson, and uh, and and so that became uh, my first uh, book published by the, the Cooper Hewitt Museum uh, through the Smithsonian uh, imprint. You don't do anything half-assed, do you? <laughs> well, I make friends and I lose friends that way, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> because uh, you know, as 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 many people would say in some of these institutions I've just mentioned, you know, I am a pain in the ass, and I think that that's another thing that getting older uh, and being ambitious, and also being a lawyer who's a feminist means that oftentimes I feel that that I um, I'm perhaps better aware of situations where people are cutting corners um and that makes me annoying yeah. because then i'm i'm outspoken enough to say well shouldn't we have a contract or oh but we do have the contract and this is you know this is what it says and you know like well let me get my lawyer to review that contract and you know so i don't think that everyone that has worked with me would say that um that I'm a wallflower or that I am. Has anybody ever said that? <laughs> when I'm sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, even then I talk in Portuguese. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, that's, that's something that I, I think that um, obviously I'm always trying to, to, to be more patient and to, to be more tolerant and to, you know, not come across as a total tractor all the time. But, um, but I, I try not to do things half-assed. But we need the Adrianas of the world to make up for all of the half-assed people that are out there, which I beg to argue. That is not coming out of my mouth. <laughs> it came out of mine, and I'll stand by it. Do you need me to write you a LinkedIn recommendation with that? Because I will. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so you get out of this design school with a published book. No big deal. Now what? So this is where, you know, this is kind of... 
it's funny enough, like this is kind of where it gets harder to tell a clean narrative because um, if, I, if I use the term design entrepreneur now, and if I have that term active on my LinkedIn, you know, dating back to, I think, graduate school, it, it, it's because they're really, at that point in my life, I'm in my 30s, I'm treating graduate school like an incubator, I'm hustling side projects all the time, mm. you know, I'm, I'm printing postcards on, on Vistaprint and business cards. I mean, to be honest, like, at that point, to now, there is no narrative like the one that came before, which was like, you know, I was at school for these two years and, did a, B, and I did this and then I'm, no. So that's really where then the conversation becomes, okay, what are certain themes in my life that, 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 that kind of umbrellaed certain projects? What are some, you know, highlights? What are some, you know, some pivots and then what's a new, a new direction? But there really, it really is at this point impossible to say, I did this, I did that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's also the point in my life in which I, I start putting more things out there on my digital platforms about, you know, about my life. So, you know, if anybody really wants to know the nitpicky details, it's, it's kind of, that's really where my website and my LinkedIn these days really does go into detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a lot harder to tell a clean, a clean narrative. What I can say, yeah, what I can say in retrospect is, you know, I feel like I spent maybe five or six years really focused on building a reputation, focused on contemporary Brazilian design that culminated with a very specific job uh, at the Museum of Arts and Design, uh, a one-year contract to work at the Museum of Arts and Design on the, uh, first exhibit in the United States about contemporary Latin American design under an, an incredibly well-known curator uh, named Lowry Sims. And, 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 and by the end of that exhibit, it had been you know five or six years living with some of these topics, um, lecturing in, in many different places and, and, and countries about fabulization, which was my first book. And I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> like I'm, I'm tired of this topic. Um, It was a very controversial book. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever dealt with controversy. Um, I stand by what I wrote, but it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a tiring run and I was ready for something new. I was ready for a new challenge. Again, adding order to some new kind of chaos, learning some new technical vocabulary. And so um, I left the museum of arts and design at the end of my contract with two very different job offers. Um, uh, in front of me. One was to join the, um, the merchandising team of One Kings Lane uh, down in, uh, in, in downtown Manhattan in a dog-friendly office um, with a lot of millennial women. And the other one was to join the Obama administration in DC, which would require a commute away from New York, away from my husband, away from my dog, Um, to be the senior advisor to the senior deputy chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And I have to say that, you know, if there's ever a point in anyone's life where they decide um, between public service and something else, I, I can't say enough about, about, about public service. Um, It really is something that I didn't grow up with anyone in my family doing. I remember when I accepted the job, I don't think any of my peers, any of my contacts in the art world in New York, 
anyone had worked for government. And I think a lot of people didn't know what the NEA was. So, you know, there's a little bit of like, it's not the coolest, <laughs> you know, um, but there are all the right reasons. And, and, and I'm very glad that I served, um, that I served under, under Obama. So um, that marked the beginning of a new, uh, of a new set of interests because it was really at the National Endowment for the Arts um, where I started opening up my eyes to a much more democratic sense of culture, mm -hmm. uh, much bigger topics, newer topics, um, you know, fresher topics than I had been exposed to in the, in the New York uh, art world. I'm very thankful to the New York art world and this kind of luxury art world that I quote grew up in. Uh, but after a certain point, I got tired of advocating for products that I would never be able to afford. Yeah. Um, and, and part of a market, um, that really, um, didn't, 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 didn't excite me anymore. Um, so it was at the national endowment for the arts that, um, that the idea of real estate and culture rubbing up against each other and, and this notion of creative placemaking, um, and this notion of, of, of policy and culture and, it, it just, it, I, my eyes were open to a much bigger, a much bigger world. Which I feel like for somebody like you, that's absolutely vital to maintaining your professional happiness. Yeah. Being exposed yeah. to new ideas and new concepts and being able to make order out of that chaos of new information in your mind. Yeah. And I, and you know, there, you, you have to give, you know, there are certain sacrifices, uh, obviously in, in, in government and the idea of writing a book, about the rebranding of cannabis and and you know that kind of being you know when i put out to the universe like ooh, i really want to write a second book like what what do i want to write about it i always make it harder on myself and find some like absurdly contemporary topic for which there is no book printed and rarely a magazine um and make that my new research topic i was you know that you're not really going to be talking about cannabis um, on anything, no social platform, nothing while you're in politics. So, um, you know, it's just important to recognize that as a multi-passionate, you know, there are sometimes certain pullbacks or you have to scale some things back just because literally legally and politically, um, you cannot, uh, do as a part of, of, of an, of an administration. So right. not everything is braidable, you guys. Not everything is braidable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know. It's rare that you can't make it work, but yeah, there are some non-negotiable situations like being part of the administration and being able to do this, you know, interesting. And for those of you that went, hold on, did I miss some? Did she just say cannabis? The hell did <laughs> yes, that I did from? just say cannabis. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so kind of rewind, you know, 30 seconds there, like, what made that be the topic you think that like poked you in the back of your brain that was like, Hey, I got an idea for you self. Let's write about cannabis and rebranding it. Where did that come from? So I, I love the gray areas between design, business, sociology, history. You could even throw in gender and race in there. Um, but that basically that gray area, uh, if you put concentric circles together where these things connect and one powers or influences the other. So 
when I was, you know, ready to put fatherization um, to, to the side and say, okay, I'm done. Um, I think I turned myself into a sponge. And even though I've never worked in, in trend forecasting, I think I, you know, I, I, I opened up my eyes and ears um, to evidence and, and, and I really can't remember uh, any one thing that landed on my radar that made me say, you know, wow, cannabis rebranding. I think there were many things that mm-hmm. were, were starting to uh, palpitate and pulse and, 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 and that just kind of, huh. Um, so that really, you know, things were already moving. And then it really was once I came back from the government job that, um, that I could, you know, take it to the next level, open it up and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think there's a, a really obvious theme that, that flows through everything you've done and all of the different interests you've followed. It is your curiosity. It's, and, you know, I think you've made really good points this entire time about how, you know, you can listen to all of these curiosities and you can, like you said, open your mind up like a sponge and just sort of pay attention to what flows in. But you do at some point have to say, okay, which one of you is the loudest? Which one is the most exciting to me? I'm going to go down that path. The rest of you hang out in the waiting room. I'll probably come back and revisit in a little bit. But like, this is the thing I'm going to focus on now. And I think that that one of the things that makes me different from some of my peers um, at the Cooper Hewitt that became very clear to me is that I am a little bit of a of a of a show pony and a little bit of a peddler at the same time. So you're not going to see me chase down topics that I don't think have a market mm-hmm. or that I don't think I can make a market for or that are not sexy enough. So there is something um, that that you know. There's a place in the world for amazing design historians that are studying 18th century silver because we need those people. Um, but you know that's not my that's not my place. And what what I like is really situations that are extremely contemporary, for better or for worse, um, and that are that have a certain um, controversy to them or are a little tantalizing and scintillating, you know, in, in other ways. So that's also something about my personality that I, that I acknowledge and, and, and that I weave and, and that makes me an entrepreneur. So a lot of people say, well, why did you make up this term design entrepreneur? Because I, I really, I really did. And I said, you know, because I looked at the terms that were in front of me, um, connected to design. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not an interior designer. I am not a, or I'm not just right. Like I'm not just this. I'm not just that. I'm not just a curator. I'm not just an academic. I'm not just this. So, you know, I, I really tried to find a term that was ambiguous or at least dynamic enough uh, Mm -hmm. to be a little bit more of a catch all. It makes perfect sense. And you know, at first glance, it's like design entrepreneur. Sure. Sure. Wait, but what is that exactly? And it, it affords you the ability to have it be ever changing and ever evolving um, because as you come across new topics under the massive umbrella of design, you're able to kind of bring them under there with you and say, yeah, this is just part of being a, a curious, you know, person that's focused on a lot of different prongs of this one topic. So it makes, right. it makes a lot of sense, especially now you explaining all of this. It's like, oh yeah, she's a design entrepreneur. Of course. Right. And that my interests, you know, my, because my aptitudes are so strongly visual now as a, as you know, with a lot of the projects that I'm working on, I know that they have a visual component or I imbue them with a visual component so that they work for me. 
Um, but you know, there's always a good conversation in my head about, you know, should it be design entrepreneurs? Should it be cultural entrepreneurs? So, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's flexible, but you know, there are downsides to it, which is, you know, the conversation about what I do is a lot more complicated, um, in different settings. I mean, I make up new titles for myself all the time. So I feel you there. I know you have a lot of good ones. I just love a good alliteration. So that's where collaboration consultant comes from. Career happiness strategist has a nice little flow to it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you guys, fuck it. We're all making all of this up every single day. Even if you have a standard title, everybody is just figuring things out as they go. And I think the quicker you are to embrace the fact that we are all constantly experimenting, the more dynamic and easier your professional life will flow. You know, if you're trying so hard to cram yourself into an existing box, sure you can do it, but where's the fun in that? Yeah. And so, you know, this, this idea of, 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 of new topics and new exploration. So I, I'd say that, you know, getting back to your theme of, of multi-passionate, one of the, one of the things that has always happened in my life is this idea of, of dual tracks usually there will be two, sometimes three mm-hmm. um, things going on at the same time that are very different from the other. So if it's, you know, researching a book versus working on an event or a conference or, if it, you know, usually there's some situation in which I spend, you know, a lot of time alone and it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a more self-directed endeavor versus there's another situation where, it's, you know, in a service capacity and I'm doing it for someone else and I'm, you know, servicing a client and, and, you know, and then within, you know, so there's always that construct in, in my life and I, and I, and I bring it into my life consciously. And then there's also the, um, the financial aspect, um, and the kind of what I call the media whore aspect, right? The sexier things that I do sometimes make the least money. Hmm. The things that I talk about the least media wise and social media wise are oftentimes the things that pay the best. Same. And and so, right. And so when I receive a new project or or I'm invited to pitch a project, it's almost like I see a dashboard in front of my eyes and it's like, okay, I'm going to say yes to this, even though it's going to be a barter agreement. But because the exposure and, 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 and the media, you know, is, is amazing or it serves as a very good precedent for this other thing that I want to do. And it's an easier pitch as a result. And then on the other hand, you know, there's the stuff that's really um, not necessarily uh, sexy that, you know, that makes money. And I have no shame talking about anything on that dashboard, but there is a recognition of you know, I price things and I tackle things in different shades of, of, of gray. Um, but, um, uh, would you uh, say about 50? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a 50 shades of gray joke, everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, it exposed middle America to SNL. I don't even want right? to talk about it. It stresses me out thinking about my like second cousin reading that and being open on Facebook talking. It stresses me out. Moving on. <laughs> Shout out to the cousin. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I, I try to do about it. So, if, you know, if I'm looking at the future, 
at, at, at this point, I'm 38 now. And one of the things that's on my mind, there, there are a couple of things on my mind. Um, one is, uh, is the recognition that a lot of entrepreneurial work, if done alone, is very lonely. So I have started partnering and working on partnering with um, one additional individual uh, per project and see if that, right. if that works. Um, and so that's, that's kind of like a new, uh, a new experiment. Um, and, and, and the other thing that I'm trying to do is really figure out what is like the, how I want to enter my forties. So what is it that is at the intersection of culture and real estate that is, um, sustainable, that is, that is exciting and that makes money in a way that I enter my forties, um, doing. And so I think that, that, you know, I have the ability to think long-term. Um, that's also something that came out of my aptitude test, something called foresight. Um, I do think long-term and I do have the ability to, to, to dream long-term. And that's really where I'm at is what, what are my forties going to look like, um, professionally? So that's the question that I'm asking. And then I'm, I'm much too superstitious to share all the details, but you know, that's what I'm working towards is to figure out what at the intersection of uh, real estate and culture is going to take me in that direction. I cannot wait to get the memo on what the hell that is. I'm sure you're equally as like anticipatory <laughs> about it. Like, what is my next 10 years going to, I mean, 10 years is way too long to predict two to three years going to look like. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I, I think I, I've, I've always looked forward to being like a badass old lady, you know? Hell yeah, like, me too, girl. That's, I, f I feel like I'm going to feel ever more in my elements. So, oh. um, so, you know, that's really what, what I'm, I'm excited about. And I think that there are a lot of industries that are changing right before our eyes. Um, and, a lot, and so I think that there are, you know, great, uh, it, it's, there are great shifts taking place that don't make things easy or great. So, you know, publishing is changing right as we speak. So I have no idea how, what I wanted to be a book project, uh, if it'll be a book project because, you know, that terrain has totally shifted. Um, you know, employment, you know, the gold watch reality has completely changed. Um, and then also, uh, I, I'm very, very cold hearted and aware of the fact that I keep putting myself in situations where women are not traditionally um, welcome. So you're you know, a door I, kicker I, downer. I like that. Uh -huh. You're a door kicker downer. You're well, like, hey, but, uh, boom, you know, I'm here. <laughs> boom, I'm here. And, and then this delusional belief that I can change things. And then this activist, you know, mindset that makes me speak my mind. But, you know, the reality is that if I look back and I say, wow, you know, Banking, law, the art world, now real estate, like which one of those doesn't have a thick glass ceiling? You know, tell me a museum that has, you know, tell me what city has a majority of women as museum directors, right? Even though the lower ranks of museums are disproportionately female, mm. uh, you know, tell me 
how, you know, how real estate, you know, let's hear about some of these, you know, Harvey Weinsteins that we know exist in that industry. You know, let's talk about uh, the promotion of women in law firms where really soft uh, predilections are what, you know, helps you become a partner. So, you know, it really, you know, but then again, I really can't sit back and chat with you about one industry where, you know, women are great and a lot of money goes through. So like, <laughs> truth, truth be told, like cannabis is, is somewhat on the rise to being at least a little bit ahead of a lot of industries in that respect. But even then it's going to yeah. change. It's yeah. going to change. The more it becomes legal and the more money flows in, I feel like guys are going to show up and be like, Hey, thanks for getting this going. But like, yep. we're going to take it back. Yep. 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 So, or yeah, you know, Hey, private equity. Um, let me run, let, you know, let me raise my seed. Let me raise my seed round and uh, I'm a dude. So, you know, not to be facetious, um, but I, I do have a certain degree of pessimism that I'm trying to just be realistic about. Well, regardless of what you do, it's going to be endlessly fascinating from an outside <laughs> perspective to watch. And I'm so grateful to know you and to have heard this entire thing um, as truncated as it actually probably was. This is by far and away the longest interview I've done, and I still don't feel like it's enough time. And so <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you. This is great. This was fun. Really, really, really good questions and a very good, um, a very good frame. I think the multi-passionate uh, theme is one that I kept in my mind as, as I was speaking with you and tried to kind of always go back to that. And, you know, yes, we were, we were truncated. I did summarize a lot, but you know, obviously I'm happy, you know, to individuals who hear this to answer and talk more about any, you know, any vertical, any part, any percentage of this that may be of interest. I mean, you're my multi-passionate muse now. And so just, you know, just don't let me down, you know, gosh, putting a lot of pressure on <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. This was incredible. I don't need the show notes are going to be like a hundred pages long, but I don't even care. So thank you. Keep up the incredible thank badass you work. You're thank inspiring you. to say the least. And, and everybody look up any one of Adriana's like amazing past pieces and yeah. I mean, God, if she's opening it up to reach out, I would hop on that shit, but I certainly am. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank Bye you guys. very much. Big hug. Bye-bye.